roaring twenties, gold dreams, glitz, glamour, jazz, flappers, prohibition, a world of possibilities. Look closer. All that glitters isn't gold. See it? Careless exploitation, lies, and death. The Great Gatsby. Hello, and welcome to the Book Club Juxtapositions podcast, a book club where we discuss two pieces of literature and juxtapose them based on theme, plot, author style, societal norms, and basically just how the book grabs you. All of the interesting things that make for a great spoiler-filled book club discussion. Did you say spoiler-filled? Yes, I said spoiler-filled. In each episode, we will mainly focus on one of the literary pieces. With all good literature, one can't help but make comparisons and connections to other literary works and in life. In the second episode, we will examine the same ideas with the counterpiece of literature. This is just a fun way to compare and contrast two pieces of literature and have a lively discussion. This is an adult podcast intended for adult listeners, and we may use adult language. Adult language? What the hell? In this month's episode, we will examine The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald versus Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell to explore fate versus free will thematically. I'm Tracy May, author, multi-award winning screenwriter, and former educator. I'm Kimberly Andy, creator of the blog Lily Heads of Curiosity, travel writer, and former educator. The Great Gatsby, an American classic, tells the story of Jay Gatsby, who falls in love with Daisy Buchanan, a wealthy socialite. He then realizes its lack of stature and money prevents him from having a future with her, so he creates a whole new successful identity that ends up costing him his life. This month, we're going to juxtapose the two books with the theme Fate versus Free Will. There is an inference behind free will that we mere mortals have control over our lives, whereas fate presupposes that we're passengers in a car. Can there be a balance between the two paradoxal forces? In our last episode, Malcolm Gladwell explored the preconceived notions we hold that success is a result of sheer talent or being born a genius, but is a result of many factors, the most important of which is what you are willing to give to achieve it. Today, we'll examine that theory using the masterfully told piece of literature, The Great Gatsby. Daisy and Tom Buchanan are unfortunate side effects of a class system that rewarded the children of wealth for their ruthless idleness. They employ Machiavellian techniques to maintain not just achieve their lifestyle by unscrupulous manipulation, exploitation, and narcissism. It's not just that they have the power that comes from money, it's that they expect it by some sort of divine right as American nobility. So does that mean that they're successful? Well, I think it depends on how you define success because are you defining wealth as success? Well, fate has handed them every possible advantage, you know, like money, privilege. Is there a difference in obtaining or mastering something because of an innate desire or a desire to just obtain wealth? Is there a difference in mastering something just because of this inner desire that you have, your free will? Is that different than a desire to just obtain wealth? It's not necessarily because you really want to master something and everything in you is telling you to do, you know, speaking to you. So Um, almost that nature versus nurture type of thing, because I don't know, I I assume when I look at free will, I think of like, you actually have to do something. Do they just react or are they actually doing something? Is there a purpose behind their actions or is it just almost like, well, a lion seeks prey? Does a lion sit around and say, huh, that antelope is looking mighty tasty. (laughs) And I'm not even sure if lions eat antelope. 
But I mean, is there some sort of idea that they're purposely acting or is it just they're reacting? That's exactly what I'm thinking is I'm thinking that along the lines with The Great Gatsby. Is this free will that he has they didn't really come from super rich families. They were kind of new money. My gut feeling throughout the whole book was that it was Gatsby's entire being was to maintain this sense of wealth to woo Daisy because that's what he thought that, you know, she expected or wanted or that's the only way he could get her. And at the same time, Tom did the same thing. I think that they had to uphold this sense of keeping up with the Joneses for, per se. So my thought was, is there a difference in obtaining and mastering something, their wealth? Is that an innate desire because that's who they feel they are and that's just what they need to be? Or is it just to obtain wealth to have this image? I don't, I honestly don't think they knew any different. I think living this other life, taking these kind of risks that Jay Gatsby took would be so far out of their purview. Like they wouldn't even think to do that. They know they just need to maintain something. And that's what I was thinking, that it's almost like they have this divine right to be American nobility. So all of their actions were about maintaining that. And almost like, how dare you even question that I should have this privilege, the, uh, the arrogance of privilege. I would say. So do you think that they knew that they truly didn't have the privilege? You know what I mean? Like basically living off of the credit. I mean, what work did they do to obtain this wealth? But they lived this status figure. So they had, they were living this facade. Do you think that they knew deep down they're living this facade? No, I think they're going to do whatever they need to do to maintain. Uh, and I think looking at the end of the book and here, you know, they, Daisy kills this woman and she's more than willing to let Jay take the blame. And I mean, I know that must have been terrifying, but afterward it was like they just kind of went on living. They went and bought a new place and they were decorating their new place. Like, they were careless people. So they thought they were just so above it. Like, yes. Okay, so the, the woman that well, she hit with the car. Justice is not for people like us. Right. So where she hit that, where she hit her with the car, she was a lower class person. Yes, I think that's she, exactly you know, what So it was. in her mind, it was just like... Okay, whatever. Right. Kind of like To that. be trampled upon. Yeah, that's that's what I got. Wow. I hadn't looked at it that way, but I see where you're going with it. Okay, so do you think Gatsby proves Gladwell's theory? Like, because I'm looking at that. If you think about Gladwell's theory that you have a goal, you're looking to put hours into achieving that goal. That he values practice and dedication. He infers that talent is overrated. So do I think that Gatsby proved Gladwell's theory? Yes. Did Gatsby practice and have dedication to what he was doing, or did he just practice living this lifestyle? Oh, I think he absolutely... It. He practiced he it. He practiced it. He, he stayed away from Daisy long enough to perfect it, because he didn't yeah. just come back from the military and be like, hey, Daisy, right. you know, and fight for her then. He knew the problem, right? and he created this whole other life for himself, and made sacrifices to achieve that goal. And the other thing I was thinking about in Gladwell's book, he you know talked about shedding pieces of your identity in order to maintain or to achieve that goal. So you know he was talking about the Korean pilots were willing to kind of shed some of their identity when it came to language, and he shed all of his identity. We didn't even really know who he was. You mean language and their culture? Right. Their whole culture and their whole being of who they were as the, the pilots. Right, and how right. that was displayed through their language. Right. And I think Gatsby really shed his indebtedness. We don't know <laughs> even know his real story until the end of the book when Father shows up and he's like, yeah, well, this is kind of who we were. We get little glimpses of it from Tom when Tom does the investigation. 
But very little. Right. Very little. Right. Because he didn't know. He, he really covered his tracks. I love the idea, and I've actually kind of stolen it as far as some of my writing, where um, they have all, all of these people that are going to his parties have this different mythology the different myth- the mythos when it comes to Jay Gatsby. Oh, I heard he killed somebody. And I heard, you know, all these different... I heard he was a spy. And, you know, oh, they yeah. kind of revel in, yes. in creating this identity for this man. And I just I just thought that was... And so, like I said, I actually used it in something else I was writing because I thought that was just so interesting. And he, he liked it. He loved that idea that they were trying to figure out. But then you think about these party goers, too, and they were just <laughs> skeevy, like, hanging at his house willing to kind of talk shit about him and not really even know who he is, but they're all getting drunk off his whiskey. And they think that there's something because they were there. Right. And I know this is the boring part for me, but I was thinking, how did they know there's a party there? Like, you know, <laughs> does he send out flyers? It was Facebook. <laughs> 1920s Facebook. 1920s Facebook. Word got around. Yeah, I was just curious about that. All right, Definitely. so here, here's Definitely. my question for you. Gatsby. You know, he's kind of held up in this, oh, Gatsby is this noble hero. But does Gatsby love Daisy? Is he obsessed? Again, it goes back to the identity thing we've talked about in a, in a um, previous episode. Is it more about creating that identity, reliving that moment of that, uh, you know, creating a new identity for himself, reliving the past? Or does he really love her? I think that he loved the, I know this is going to sound so cliche, but I think he loved the idea of what she represented. So he was in love with the idea of her and the status that she had. At one point when he's talking about when he saw her, she was just as comfortable in her big quarters of her house as, and he compared it to something very minute. Um, I wish I had that exact verbiage here, but I think that he just saw that that was such a pristine lifestyle that that would be something that he was in love with and he wanted back or he wanted to be able to have. And maybe he thought that the only route there was with her. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I thought was very strange as far as that, and maybe I took it wrong, I don't know, but when he was talking about in her house and that there were many men that had been there with her and that that appealed to him and made her more attractive to him because of all the men that, that had she loved had her. lots of affairs. That's maybe I read it wrong and right. I might feel like a complete fool after this, but that's how I kind of was like, that's what? <laughs> was it like, cause I don't really remember that, but it doesn't mean that, you know what I'm saying? I just yeah. don't remember it specifically. Was the inference like she has a lot of men who want her? No, that she had had a lot of men there and that that made her even more attractive to him because she was loved by so many like like loved kind of like she was she was desired by so many other men and that basically i kind of looked at it like okay then i guess he felt he was really something because of all those other men she chose him did that make him feel like a a notch above yeah but then again is that about daisy See, I think that's no, so that's much more, more about, about him. him. Yeah, definitely yes. more about his identity and macho That he's look re- at me. reached a status right. that it was above. You know, in, in our culture today, I'd almost say, is he toxic? He's kind of created this kind of a stalker-like life just to please her. Well, here's something then along those lines that might sound really weird, but we know that Tom was muscular and athletic and a... What did she call him? Bulking? or A bulking, hulking mass of a man. Right, yeah. Massive muscle or something. Right. And obviously, Jay's not. Was this kind of a a way for him to try to... Balance the playing field? Yeah, to step in his shoes. So it's being kind of be the big man too. Right. I don't know. That's very interesting. I I think, do you think he would 
be like the dog who caught the fire truck after a while. Like, would would this <laughs> obsession with her fade now that he had her, now that they were together? I mean, imagine like, so we didn't kill poor Mrs. Wilson in the car five years from now. Yeah. Would he still be like, oh, Daisy? Or is it like, oh, Daisy, you're still here? Who knows? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe if he were living that lifestyle, he would go on just like we were saying. He would go on as if that's status quo. That's exactly what he wanted. He, so you when know, you whether you want, can you be satisfied? But he had the big house and he had the parties and so... But he didn't like the parties. He never no. even really went to his own parties. No, but was he satisfied then? I don't know, because he, then he finally got his end goal was to get Daisy. So at that point, do you think he would have been dissatisfied enough to just let all that go? I don't know. What does Daisy even want? Well, that's a good question. Does she really want... I think some of the more interesting parts of Daisy really is when she kind of... She talks about her daughter and she's like, the best thing my daughter can be is a stupid little fool. That's a, that's the best thing a girl could be. <laughs> so there's more going on with Daisy than we give her credit for. Then she uses that kind of intellectual prowess at the end to get out of jail free card, basically. I don't know if Daisy's ever, as a woman, I don't know if Daisy's ever been taught to want anything. She wanted Jay... But he was poor. Well, she never really had to... Do you think she ever really had to work for anything that she got in her life? So in order to really worry about maintaining some kind... Yeah, I mean, it was kind of there for her. I it mean, made me think of Gandhi, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but Gandhi, I think, talked about the seven sins. And one of the seven sins was wealth without work. When you achieve that kind of wealth, or you you don't achieve it, you have it, it's there, it exists, and you never have to work for it. So that goes to, did she really appreciate it? Right. Did she know how to truly appreciate it? Like, at I the mean. end, like, she cling to it. Yeah, she cling to it. It's a survival technique, I guess, but to, to really appreciate something. Like, right. Do you really appreciate it unless you know what it was like to work for it? Well, that kind of goes to then with this novel, you know, it is definitely an icon and represents the time period. You know, when you think about other podcasts and things that I've listened to and, and studies that I, I've done on The Great Gatsby, it doesn't matter where you are, London, anywhere, like that this is the novel that represents that time period of America in the 1920s. So if I were to ask you what was what were the 1920s like, what would you, what comes to mind first? I, I guess the flappers, uh, prohibition, but I also start to think about, you know, you can kind of see little tiny inklings of it in the book where it's all going to come to an end. And then you have the stock market crash. So it's that moment in time where it just feels like everything is about to change. And maybe all of them were clinging to that at that time period. I mean, Fitzgerald didn't know that it was all about to crash. I mean, maybe there were signs. Maybe he could see because it was 1925 and the crash happened in 1929. So it was very close, you know, when the time this book was written to the time that it actually happened. But can that kind of decadence eat itself and then create something like the stock market crash. Well, you look at when we did Bradbury with Fahrenheit 451, it's so like, oh my gosh, how did he know? So in a way, when these authors and these artists are capturing these moments in time, and you see the little tiny glimpses of, wow. Well, I think it's because, and this just came to mind, these authors, and especially during this time period, when we're talking about the, the realism, time, the modernism times, you know, the, the whole art phases that went through, you know, then actual art, but then the art of writing, that this is more bringing into focus society and people, micro focus on society and the way that nature is and how people were working together instead of a minute story plot line of one person. It's just overall how the whole society is working together. So I think that's really big in understanding what's really happening globally 
in a situation is how is society looking if we were to take today like a snow globe yeah if we were to take today and look at what is society focusing on what do you and i focus on what do we hear when we're on a subway what do we see smaller like that and instead of thinking that everything else outside of our four walls is them <laughs> Then you kind of have a bigger understanding so of what's going that on. like narcissistic view of life maybe yeah. in your own snow globe yeah yeah and then if we just sat back and looked at the bigger picture the bigger picture i think that that's what the novelists did that they were looking at the bigger picture to represent something and i don't think fitzgerald sat down and said i'm going to write down the quintessential novel of the 1920s of american society that's a lot of pressure that is a lot of pressure can you imagine <laughs> but i think that when he sat down what he was able to draw out from what he was writing was very much keys into that the thing that i find so incredibly interesting about this time period is that he focuses on this and you when you think about the 1920s like i said what first comes to mind you said flappers and prohibition and all that but at the same time that was all east coast united states when you think about the west coast united states it was something completely different and that comes to mind with the book death comes to the archbishop wilma cather and to see that completely different idea of american culture which is same exact time period what makes one the ideal define the 1920s of american culture too right. as opposed to the other it's really interesting well, to I me think to too, see that when we look at it you know we may be looking at it more cinematically yeah. i mean how many books were about Exactly. Death comes from, you know, death comes to the Archbishop, that kind of life versus, you know, every other American classic movie image of the 1920s that we've kind of imprinted. And truthfully, it's probably more interesting. Way more interesting. Than to think about a guy (laughs) on a donkey. I'm sorry. (laughs) But visually, I want to know about the flappers and the prohibition and the speakeasies. Because that became a bigger wave that just flowed over across the country and, and then became the footprint of the country. When you think about what happened and what was laying all that groundwork before and what was here, at the same time, you really get a sense of that in The Death Comes to the Archbishop, which was, you know, the first, I'll admit, I started to read that book and thought, why am I reading this? But it really became clear to me after that when I started thinking about how they compared and character-driven versus nature, I think is interesting with that. Well, the characters in Death Comes to the Archbishop had a purpose bigger than themselves. Yes. Had a purpose. Had a purpose. You know, Tom and Daisy, they did it. They're not purpose-driven people other than manipulating others to maintain their status quo. Well, so going back to what you said about um, Gladwell's theory and Gatsby, do you you think that Gatsby achieved success? And if he did, at what cost? His life. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Duh, did you not read the last chapter? (laughs) I think he had a moment. He wants her to completely utterly say she never loved Tom like dismiss any life between when he left and now and you can't do that you can't relive the past would he ever be satisfied I I don't know I mean but I do think there was a moment in time where he probably felt like he was just on the cusp of achieving it I think I and I honestly wonder if she wouldn't have gotten rid of Tom if she thought he was the bigger and better deal because truly Tom was human garbage. I would think Gatsby was the bigger and better deal. Why? 
Because he was interesting. I'm just curious. I'm just I mean, curious. Gatsby was interesting, at least. I'm, like, I'm just curious. There's a little bit about the little I mean, element of danger. Come on, you're looking at Tom. He's got a girlfriend. Just a bug. He's just, he's a racist. Like, yes. yuck. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. That's what I was um, I was going to ask you, is there anybody in the book likable? Did you, is, do you have a favorite character? Uh, for, you I know? think they're all interesting their own ways. I think uh, Nick, for example, it's interesting that the whole story is told by Nick and it's that the role from innocence to experience and we see we meet Nick he's got this innocence about him uh, he looks at Daisy and he just fell in love with the life and then he sees the truth behind it all and he sees the ugly side of the idle wealthy and what they what Daisy was willing to do what Tom was willing to do just to maintain it he's forever changed he doesn't want to even live there anymore yeah, yeah. I think Jordan is an interesting character because she seems to be just like that permanent third wheel hanging out willing to be like hey what's going on like a little bit of the the gossip girl that wants to know like what oh he's on the phone you know what's (laughs) going on in that relationship and she's able to she's pulling a lot of strings and i don't know she she just kind of gave me a little bit of the it vibe i think mr wilson god love him he got the bad end of the deal all around you know his wife's having an affair he's kind of just been the dupe of the whole thing he doesn't he doesn't understand what's going on but he loves her. He's just a hard-working guy that's trying to make ends meet every day. But do you think we need to have characters we like? Yeah. I think that that kind of, like, um, drives you through the story, keeps you interested. I mean, if there's a something going on, a TV show or whatever else, if you don't like, if you're not making a connection with somebody that's on there, somebody you don't like to cheer for, an underdog or somebody to cheer along, then I don't think you get as much out of it because you don't feel like there was something that you're invested in with it. Well, old sport. I wanted to... (laughs) I've been waiting to do that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about F. Scott Fitzgerald because, again, I think that this novel being so classic and and having so much history behind it, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how impactful Fitzgerald is as a writer. So I love how Fitzgerald is able to blend this intense symbolism and figurative language of modernism with the realism, the psychological and the social aspects. So during that time that this novel was written, realism was a literary movement that basically depicted the world and people as they really were. The writers used human nature and psychological complex yet believable characters to provide their insights. So we talked about Edgar Allan Poe and how his life influenced what he wrote. I feel that looking into the history of Escott Fitzgerald, um, we find many aspects of his life in his writing. Do you? Oh, I think so, because he was absolutely in love with Zelda Sire. Yes. And I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. And she is Daisy. I, I think Zelda was probably way more likable than Daisy. But then in that manic, you know, that manic pixie dream girl idea, and Zelda was the one considered the first flapper, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So that kind of idea, that was basically the same character, at least visually on the outside, the same character. So life impact work? Yeah, because I think that that's exactly right. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote The the Side of Paradise in 1920, and that's a book that's autobiographical about love and greed. Um, so in this story, in The, the Side of Paradise, um, which maybe we can add to the book club reading list sometime, possibly, is about the ambitious Midwesterner, which is Fitzgerald, because he was born in Minnesota. He falls in love with an ultimately rejected by two girls from high-class families. Um, Jay. He's Jay. There we go. Yeah. Um, he was 24 years old when he wrote that book. Is that crazy? 24 years old. Um, so you think about that, where, where to, he was at there. Hate him a little bit. <laughs> 
that that book he became almost an overnight success. So with the success of that novel, he became a playboy. Hmm, wonder where that's leading to. And he lived an extravagant lifestyle. Comparing to Malcolm Gladwell's ideas, is it fate versus free will that led to his success? Hmm. My question is, does it make a difference how you maintain the success? Meaning, if it was fate, are you more apt to squander it? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, because you never worked for it in the first place. So it's about that. If you you value what you work for. Yeah, so it's more of that being And then if you say they when you see it slip away, then you might scramble to keep it and appreciate it more than you did. Absolutely. So then, continuing on with Fitzgerald's history, in 1922, he published The Beautiful and the Damned, a story of a troubled marriage. This all takes place during the Jazz Age and helped chronicle the culture of wealth, extravagance, and ambition. It was the age of miracles, Fitzgerald said. He was quoted to say that once, and he said it was um, the age of art, and it was an age of excess, and it was an age of satire. Well, that all fits with the book. I'm not sure about satire, but it was all the other components. All the other components, and that's that's how he described it. So in 1925, The Great Gatsby comes along, and it's considered to be Fitzgerald's finest work. I think that this is largely to do with his time that he spent in Paris and he spent with Gertrude Stein and they had basically their writing groups and they combined their talents and fed each other fed each other so I got lost in the way that he would describe things and the character that he built in Jay Gatsby old sport and like I said this book I can't get enough of this book I've read it many times I've watched the different you know I watch I like the original the classic version of the movie I've seen the other one I will find it because I think this book what makes it such a classic is that it speaks to us to me it's as relevant today as it was then and because it's a story about privilege it's a timeless, timeless theme. It's one of those things that we still haven't learned from history, right? Right, exactly. Well, if you haven't watched, and I know you have, but listeners, if you haven't watched Midnight in Paris, do so as soon as possible. Because <laughs> I'm still hoping to find that secret passageway in Paris and meet F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> and Hemingway. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You gotta love a man that can phrase things the way that he does with his writing. Right. Doesn't it make you happy to think that those kind of um, thoughts can swirl around in a man's head? <laughs> Incredulous, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I love, also love how art and literature flow along the same stream of history. Right. Which is really cool to compare the two and see what is going on in painting and art and then also in writing. So the end of the book, Nick references this. He, he referenced the artist um, El Greco, El Greco, the 16th century painter who had been called the first modernist for the way that his paintings distorted figures and fractured color to... They actually investigated the surface of reality. Thinking of some of Fitzgerald's descriptions in Gatsby, he says, like, a grotesque rose and... Kind of the paradox. Yeah, and uh, shining dust and blue smoke. Isn't that cool how the same kind of things, and I think that that goes along with the groups that he had and with the Gertrude Stein influence. And And Picasso. All of that, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. all of those influences at the same time, I think really is cool that he brought that out in his writing. And I love how these are poetic distortions of reality, and I think he also got that poeticness from Gertrude Stein. Um, And he characterizes automobiles in his book that way, and technology is dangerous yet alluring. Um, reflecting the modernist anxieties about automation, right? All of this, yet Gatsby doesn't belong to modernism completely because of its many realist attributes, because he focuses a lot on setting and detail and social commentary. Yeah, I think to think about little pockets of artists, writers, thinkers, 
living and existing in a certain time period and feeding off each other is a beautiful thing that, wow, I'm jealous to be able to exist in a pocket of time like that Isn't where this explosion of art. Everything around him, it just like um, that energy had to have been. Yeah, definitely the energy. So incredibly cool. What do you think about symbolism in Fitzgerald's work as compared to Shakespeare's work? Do you see any connections there, like emotional I know narrative the tone? There was, you know, a lot of talk about the colors of it, the gold, you know, kind of going back to that idea of this rich extravagant time period in life versus Shakespeare, like any Shakespeare or... Yeah, like uh, like the way Shakespeare writes, because so Shakespeare uses a lot of symbolism and like the weather. So in the, the in Gatsby, yeah, in Gatsby, the weather, the seasons were definitely the season that was being described that was happening at different points of the story were very symbolic about what was going on in the story. For example, Gatsby and Daisy's reunion, it's pouring rain, melancholy. Uh, they reunite. That's a reawakening. Well, when did they reunite? Just as the sun was coming out. Gatsby and Tom's confrontation is on the hottest day of the summer, much like Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's the King Lear's, like the storm, the storm going on inside his head. Yeah. I think those are timeless, and I think Shakespeare was kind of the icon that created a lot of what we now consider exactly. in our own work. But isn't that cool? You can find Shakespeare in everything, and then you look at this, and it's like, there we go again. You know, Wilson kills Gatsby on the first day of autumn. The With group- a change. Yeah. Like, maybe this is only could be a summer story. Right. And that that's the end of... I do like that idea of, like, it's so hot that you think the, the, the rules don't apply anymore. It was a line from uh, Body Heat, and that was, you know, it's so hot that people don't feel like the rules have to apply to them. And definitely that was the way that Tom lived his life. And then the first day in autumn with the change. Yeah. So Isn't that cool? Yeah, very cool. Very interesting. I think it's really cool. I think that, too, there was other stuff I found that with the symbolism, connections, like... Um, in Chapter 9, Nick compares America to rising out of the ocean. It must have looked to early settlers of the new nation. Um, I think that's pretty cool. And that, that is connecting to that green light on Daisy's dock. That was really cool. And then, of course, the Valley of Ashes. Um, in Chapter 2, describing the land between West Egg and um, New York City. And that represents the moral and so- social decay of how the wealthy seek out Um, what they desire without considering others. So that whole part in the middle is just this gray area. Moral ambiguity. Yeah, this like gray, whatever, literally a gray area that they didn't think of. And where did Mrs. Wilson get killed? Right. You know, looking for their own pleasure only. So they were on their way to their own pleasure. What happened in between? Whatever. Didn't matter. Um, And the ashes, of course, that gray area also represents the poor. So living among the dirty and being in that poor area. So overall, wow, just a cool way to be able to see Malcolm Gladwell's um, free will and talking about that as opposed to the fate and comparing these two things has been really enlightening. Yeah, I, I definitely like this idea. It came to me when I was reading the book, The Great Gatsby, and I thought, well, then, and then I was reading the Gladwell book. I'm like, well, they're successful right. and they've done nothing to achieve it. <laughs> So, hence, <laughs> hence the podcast episode was born. Yay! <laughs> well, we want to hear from you. You can check us out on our social media Twitter account, at Book Club Juxtas, or on our Facebook account, Book Club Juxtapositions, where we'll engage in a lively discussion with all of you online and share your highlights, and, and we're reading everything, and we really appreciate it. If you can subscribe and rate us on our podcast, that would be fantastic as well. 
What can we look forward to in our next episodes? I'm glad you asked. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. For Audrey Coltrane, this is a day her life will forever be changed. Love, loss, patriotism, honor. So our next month's books are going to be The Flight Girls by Noelle Salazar. And that podcast will be available on January 27th. And we're going to juxtapose that with uh, Train in Winter by Caroline Moorhead. And that episode will launch on February 10th. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to hearing what you guys have to share with us. Until then, happy reading and ciao, ciao bellas. bellas.